This is, as you can see on our screen, a seminar on spiritual gifts. I called it an introduction because it's intended to be kind of an initial overview of this important topic, and I'm excited to dig into this topic with you. So, gifts that keep on giving. I've titled our session with that title because I want us to think about spiritual gifts not as something that we receive and experience as an end in ourselves, but rather something that we are given from the Lord so that we might be a gift to other people within the body of Christ. So these are gifts that we receive, but not as some sort of end point, but rather as a starting place from which we serve one another. All right, so gifts that keep on giving an introduction to the purpose and practice of spiritual gifts. And if for some reason you didn't read that when you walked in and you suddenly have discovered that you're in the wrong place or you want to go hear a different seminar, I won't be offended. I'm going to pray for us. This is your moment. You still have time to make it to a seminar that you really want to go to. Okay, let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the way in which you have given us every blessing in Christ. You have rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your Son. You did so by calling us when we could not hear, by regenerating us when we were spiritually dead, imparting to us life through the Holy Spirit. And then having raised us up with Christ and seated us with him, you continue to grow us in the likeness of our Savior, and you do it all through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we recognize that we are incredibly blessed as those who are part of your redeemed people. And yet, on top of all of that, you endow us with giftedness, so that we might be useful in your service. And it's a joy for us to consider the many ways in which you gift your people so that they become a gift to the body, so that together there is unity and diversity. And by encouraging one another and building one another up in the faith, we grow collectively and glorify the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're excited to examine this topic this morning, and we pray this in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. All right, some of you are still here. (laughs) Gifts that keep on giving. Now, I've organized our discussion today around 10 common questions that I want to attempt to answer in an overview fashion for the time that we have this morning. And I will do my best to make sure that these PowerPoint slides end up with the audio uh, so that if you don't want to take fastidious notes, you can just go back and find the PowerPoint later. But we are going to be answering 10 common questions about spiritual gifts, and it's 
interesting to me that the topic of spiritual gifts has become something that is so controversial in the church. In fact, it's a bit ironic because spiritual gifts are given for the sake of the unity of the body, and yet this particular topic has become something that is often divisive among Christians, especially with one particular category of spiritual gifts, a group of gifts known as the sign gifts or the extraordinary gifts, or sometimes called the charismatic gifts, and we'll get into a little bit of discussion about that this morning. But although we will deal with some of the technical and theological nuances of things like the charismatic and continuationist movements, my primary goal this morning is to give you a biblical and practical overview of all of the spiritual gifts so that you can be encouraged to think about how can I be a gift to the church. And I think that is the right question that we need to ask when we think about spiritual gifts. It's not so much what specific gift have I received so that I can define it and think highly of myself because I have it. That's not at all the point. It is rather, how can I take what God has given me and be a gift to His people for His glory? And we'll discuss that and elaborate on that as we go through our discussion this morning. So 10 questions, 10 common questions about spiritual gifts, and hopefully one of these 10 questions will be a question that you are asking. If not, you're welcome to come talk to me after this morning, and I'll do my best to answer your specific question. Number one, the first really basic question that I think we have to answer when it comes to this subject is, what are spiritual gifts? And we will look at a number of passages of Scripture this morning that help us understand and define spiritual gifts, but just very basically, spiritual giftedness, spiritual gifting, spiritual gifts are special endowments of God's grace bestowed on believers by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ and also building up the body of Jesus Christ. And we'll see in some of our texts this morning how these gifts are rooted in the grace of God. That is the source of these gifts. And they are empowered, we see this in other texts, by the Holy Spirit. They are endowed by His sovereign appointment, and they are empowered by Him And so they are rooted in God's grace, empowered by the Holy Spirit, with the purpose of advancing the gospel of Jesus Christ when those gifts are applied to non-believers, and also then edifying and building up the body of Christ when the expression of those gifts is applied to fellow Christians. And I think we'll see that in the text. And then again, I just want to reiterate this point, that second bullet point there. When believers exercise their giftedness in the proper way, they become a gift to the church. Again, I think it's very typical for people to think about spiritual gifts through the lens of, what is my spiritual gift? Rather than asking that question, even though that's a valid question and it's an important question, I think a better question is to ask, how can I be a gift to the church? 
Because when you answer that second question, the answer to the first question will become evident. How can I be a gift to the body of Christ? And when every believer is asking that question and seeking to bless and edify their fellow Christians within the context of the local church, the organism of the local church, the body of Christ, operates appropriately, properly, seamlessly, and everyone is built up. So that's our first question. What are spiritual gifts? Secondly, what passages or which passages teach us about spiritual gifts? Now, we see spiritual gifts evidenced all throughout the New Testament. We see, for example, in the book of Acts, illustrations of those who were exercising their special endowments through the power of the Holy Spirit for the advancement of the gospel and the building up of the body of Christ. But there are four specific texts within the epistles of the New Testament that really address the topic of spiritual gifts in a way that is helpful to us because it delineates, defines, identifies these gifts, and describes them at least to a limited extent. Those four texts would be Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, Ephesians chapter 4, verses, really verses 8 to 13, and 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And I want to read portions of those texts so that you can see in Scripture where we are going to hear from the Holy Spirit who inspired these texts about the gifts that he gives to his people. This is Romans chapter 12, verses 3 through 8. Of course, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2 are those wonderful verses about being a living sacrifice to the Lord, as those who have offered ourselves as living sacrifices to him, how then does that live itself out in the context of everyday life? It's interesting that Paul goes straight from that thought to talking about how God has gifted each individual believer so that every believer can be a gift to the church. And then in verses 9 and following, he talks about what love looks like practically, and in that sense follows a very similar pattern to the pattern of 1 Corinthians 12. But here's Romans 12. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of, really should be the faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with generosity or liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy, and it goes on to describe that there in that verse. So you can see here in Romans chapter 12 that we have an initial listing of these 
gifts. Now, in the order that Paul actually wrote his epistles, Romans was written shortly after the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you were to chart out Paul's ministry, this is the second time in Paul's ministry that he lists out the gifts, having given a a longer list in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. Let me just read a little bit from 1 Corinthians 12. There's two particular passages in that chapter that give us a listing of these spiritual gifts. This is 1 Corinthians 12, 4 to 11. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, to another the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things distributing to each one individually just as he wills. Then a little bit later in that chapter, after Paul gives an extended illustration of how the human body is an analogy for how we think about the corporate body of the church, and Paul's point in that is not everybody gets the same gift just as not every part of your body has the same function. Your foot and your hand have very different functions, and yet the body is blessed when a foot does what a foot is supposed to do, and a hand does what a hand is supposed to do. After going through that illustration here at the end of chapter 12, Paul continues, he says, Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. And then he makes the point that not everybody has the same gifts. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? And all do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And when Paul says earnestly desire the greater gifts, he's using that as a transition into chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians where he's going to explain that love is the greatest of the gifts and, in fact, is far greater than any spiritual gift because it's the whole reason that the gifts were given in the first place as a manifestation of showing love, the love of Christ, to other members of the body. We have another list in Ephesians chapter 4. So Paul wrote 1 Corinthians probably around 54 or 55 AD. He would have written Romans around 56 or 57. Ephesians he writes in the early 60s. This is when he was under house arrest in Rome during his first Roman imprisonment. And he gives us now a third listing of spiritual gifts. Speaking of Christ and actually quoting from Psalm 68 there in Ephesians 4.8, Paul says, he ascended on high, that's a reference to Christ, and when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then Paul explains that he who ascended was he who descended, and now he has been raised and ascended to the right hand of God, 
And then in verse 11, he says, And Christ gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the service, to the building up of the body of Christ. So we see there that when Christ ascended, he gave gifts to the church. And I think what's really interesting about this passage and also the last one that we read, the end of 1 Corinthians 12, is that it's not so much the abilities that are being described as gifts, but the actual people who are being described as gifts, which reinforces really the main point that I'm hoping to get across this morning, and that is that you as a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a gift to the church. The question is, how are you being a gift to the church? One more passage, 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And again, this is in an effort to survey what the New Testament says about these gifts. We first have to understand where they are listed and how they are described. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11, and Peter would have written this shortly after Paul wrote Ephesians. So if we're keeping in chronological order, 1 Corinthians 12 is first, followed by Romans 12, then Ephesians, and then 1 Peter. Here Peter says, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies, so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So here Peter actually gives us some categories of gifts, and we're going to borrow his terminology a little bit later when we talk about speaking gifts and serving gifts, we find that here in this text. So if we were to identify each specific gift that was listed in those passages, 1 Peter 4 doesn't really mention any individual gift, rather it gives us categories. We would see that in Romans we have prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, leading, giving, and mercy. In 1 Corinthians 12, we have words of wisdom, the word of knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, or the distinguishing of spirits, tongues, interpretation of tongues, apostleship, administration, and helps. And then in Ephesians 4.11, apostleship, prophecy, evangelism, pastoring, and teaching. So this gives us a list from those New Testament passages that identify these specific gifts, And we'll talk a little bit more later about some other potential additions to this list, but these are the definitive lists as they are found in the New Testament. Brings us to our third question. How should we categorize spiritual gifts? What are the categories? Now, obviously, this is a little bit subjective, but I would suggest that there are two basic categories into which the spiritual gifts found in the New Testament fall. Those would be extraordinary gifts, and then a second category of edifying gifts. Extraordinary gifts 
are the sign gifts and the revelatory gifts, and we're going to talk a little bit more about those in a moment. Those gifts were for the foundation of the church, and I'll explain more here in a second. Edifying gifts include those two categories from 1 Peter chapter 4, serving gifts and speaking gifts, and those gifts are for the ongoing function of the church, which is why we call them edifying gifts. So you have gifts for the foundation of the church, and you have gifts for the ongoing function of the church. Temporary gifts, the extraordinary gifts, and perpetual gifts, the edifying gifts. A fourth question, what were the extraordinary gifts? And this is where our topic for this morning tends to become a little bit controversial because of the development of Pentecostal and charismatic theology over the last 120 years or so. So we'll talk just a little bit about that, but I don't want to get embroiled in that topic today. I have other lectures. In fact, not too long ago, I did a Sundays in July specifically on the gift of prophecy where we really delved into that. So if you're looking for resources on that, I'd be happy to point you in that direction. That's not the primary goal of our overview this morning, but we will touch on it. Extraordinary gifts fall into two subcategories, sign gifts and revelatory gifts. The sign gifts are the gifts that authenticate God's spokesman in the foundational age of the church. The Lord Jesus Christ himself authenticated his ministry. He authenticated his claims through the miraculous signs which he performed. In fact, in John chapter 10, he told the religious leaders, he said, if you don't believe my words, believe the signs. The signs were there to authenticate the mission and message of the Lord Jesus as to authenticate his credibility, his claims that he was indeed the Son of God and that he was the Messiah sent from God to redeem sinners through his sacrifice. So we see in Christ the paradigm itself and then his apostles and the early church also experience the opportunity to demonstrate these same kinds of validating signs which authenticate them as being truly spokesmen for God. The revelatory gifts are the actual content of what they speak from God. So the revelatory gifts impart new revelation from God to the church through the prophets. And the sign gifts are primarily associated with the ministry of the apostles. The revelatory gifts, the ministry of both the apostles and the prophets, as they gave new revelation to the church at the foundation stage of church history. So let's talk a little bit about the sign gifts. Sign gifts would include apostleship as a gift, which is also an office. It would include miracles and healing, and those two things are often interchangeable. Most of the miracles recorded in the New Testament were healing miracles. And then the gift of tongues, which as we will see was the supernatural ability to speak fluently a foreign language which you had never learned before. And that's an important definition, and we'll talk about why in a moment. 
Just a couple of relevant passages that show how these phenomena were identified as signs in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 14. So then tongues are for a sign, not to those who believe, but to unbelievers, 1 Corinthians 14, 22. And in that passage, Paul actually quotes from Isaiah 28, where we see foreign languages being spoken in Israel as a sign of God's judgment for Israel. And here we have in 1 Corinthians 14, tongues are a sign for unbelievers because they were used in contexts in which you had a presentation of the gospel. People were amazed to hear their own native languages being spoken fluently by people they know didn't know that language beforehand. And we see that illustrated in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost. We'll talk about that a little bit more here in just a second. 2 Corinthians 12.12 Here, Paul talks about miracles. He says, the signs of an apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. He's actually defending his apostolic ministry in writing that. He's saying, look, I authenticated my claim to be an apostle because I demonstrated the signs of an apostle. And they included signs and wonders and miracles. In Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, the author of Hebrews looks back at the work of the apostles, and he says, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, if we reject the gospel. After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed by those who heard God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So here the author of Hebrews makes it clear that these miracles, these wonders, they were authenticating the gospel that was being preached by the apostles and by others in the early church. That second category of extraordinary gifts is revelatory gifts. So sign gifts would be, as we've mentioned, things like apostleship miracles, healing, and tongues. Revelatory gifts include prophecy, words of wisdom and knowledge, which were a subset of that prophetic gift, and then the interpretation of tongues. Interpretation of tongues was the ability to translate a message that was spoken in a foreign language by somebody who had the gift of tongues, and the translation of that would be revealed to the person with the gift of interpreting tongues. So just a couple of relevant passages. We know that Christ promised to his followers, to the apostles specifically, that he would give them additional revelation for the church through the Holy Spirit. We see that in the upper room in John chapter 16, where Jesus said, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when the Holy Spirit, he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. So there Jesus is explaining that he has more to tell his people through the apostles, through the Holy Spirit, and of course that promise is fulfilled in the writing of the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 14, the Apostle Paul talks 
at some length about prophecy and tongues. We won't spend much time in that chapter this morning because that's not the purpose of this particular discussion. But he does define prophecy there. He says, one who prophesies speaks to men for edification and exhortation and consolation. He says, now I wish you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets so that the church may receive edification. Uh, There's a lot that could be said about those verses. Here Paul defines prophecy as revelation from God that builds up, it's edifying, it's exhorting, it's consoling. And then he also explains that prophecy was inherently superior to tongues for the purpose of edifying because a message spoken in a language you already know is something you can understand and apply, whereas a message spoken in a foreign language unless you already know that language, is something that you don't understand and therefore cannot benefit from. The message in the foreign language only becomes beneficial, as Paul explains here, if there's someone there to interpret it. So the interpretation of a foreign language makes that message as valuable as prophecy because, again, it's then in a language that people can understand. All right. I'm tempted to give you an illustration. It's not a very good illustration, mainly because I don't have the gift of tongues. I have the gift of Google Translate, and the gift of Google Translate's kind of hit and miss. But I'll attempt it, and Rodney can um, laugh at me. Um, I was talking to Rodney Anderson before we started, and of course, Rodney and Glenna served for a number of years in China. So I'm going to attempt to speak a phrase in Chinese just to help you understand what it's like to hear something spoken in a tongue. Yesu aini? Close? Close, close. Okay. Now, if you know Chinese, then you know that I attempted to say something. If you don't know Chinese then you just think, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen at Grace Church. (laughs) And that's because when somebody says something in a foreign language, if you don't know the foreign language, or if you don't have a translator to translate the message, you are not edified. So prophecy, because it's in a language everybody already understood, was inherently profitable. That's Paul's point here. Tongues, because it was in a foreign language, required translation in order to be profitable. So when I say, Yesu aini, what I'm trying to say is Jesus loves you. And now that you know that it means Jesus loves you, you have been edified. Okay. Let's go to a fifth question. Why... Did the extraordinary gifts pass away? So we've already made the claim that the extraordinary gifts were for the foundation age of the church and therefore should not be expected to continue after the apostolic era has passed. Whereas the edifying gifts are for the ongoing function of the church and therefore should be expected to continue and be pursued in the present. So the question that often arises is, okay, well, 
why did those extraordinary gifts pass away? Well, the answer is probably a bigger discussion than what we have time for this morning, but it involves at least a few key thoughts. Number one here, those foundational gifts, those extraordinary gifts, were for the foundation age of the church, the age of the apostles. They were no longer needed after the canon of Scripture was complete and the church was firmly established. And I'll read Ephesians 2.20 here in just a moment. Second Peter 1, 2, and 3 is that passage where Peter says that we have, through the knowledge of God, all that we need for life and godliness. And then later in that passage, he goes on to define the source of our knowledge from God as being the prophetic word, which is more sure than even spiritual experience. Ephesians 2.20 is a really important passage in this regard because it's there that the Apostle Paul identifies the fact that the apostles and prophets were given to the church for the foundation of the church. And so you can see, starting in verse 19, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens. He's talking to Gentile believers. You've been brought near through the blood of Christ. You are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then he goes on to describe how the whole church is built on Christ, and it's built on the foundation of the apostolic witness to Christ. So the foundation of the church is the doctrine given to the apostles and the prophets, that revelatory content, through the Holy Spirit, which Christ himself promised in John chapter 16. Another passage that would relate to this, 1 Corinthians 3, where Paul says that the only foundation we have in ministry is Christ. There is no found other foundation than him. Peter in 1 Peter 2 says that we are all smaller stones built on the cornerstone who is Christ. So Christ is the foundation, and the apostles and the prophets, the revelatory content they received from Christ, as they point us to Christ, they become part of that doctrinal foundation. So the foundation age of the church is defined by the ministry of the apostles and the prophets, so that when apostles are no longer part of what God is doing through the church, the apostolic age concludes, then the foundation age is over. Paul uses the metaphor of a building, and any of you who understand construction understand that in the process of constructing a building, the foundation is laid only once. It's laid once, and then the superstructure of the building is built on top of that foundation. Same thing is true in church history. The foundation was laid once in the first century through the apostles, and it is contained, that foundational truth, in our New Testaments, and then the superstructure of church history is built on top of that foundation. Just a few things to note about these extraordinary gifts, the gift of apostleship, prophecy, tongues, and healing miracles. Number one, no one today meets the qualifications of an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostles of Jesus Christ had to be eyewitnesses, physical eyewitnesses, of the risen Christ. They also were appointed by Jesus Christ personally, and they had to confirm 
their mission and their message with miraculous signs. We already read from 2 Corinthians where Paul said, I did the signs of an apostle. That verifies my apostolic claim. That first bullet point there is really important because Paul says he was the last eyewitness of the risen Christ. He says that in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, and 8. You can see that verse there on the screen. Then Jesus, the risen Christ, he appeared to James, his brother, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Paul's making it clear that after him, there were no other eyewitnesses of the risen Christ, which means that there can be no other apostles appointed in the church after the apostle Paul. That also means that when the apostle John, who was the longest living apostle, when he died around the year 100, the apostolic age came to an end. And when the apostolic age came to an end, the canon was closed. We talked about that last Sunday night when we talked about canonicity. And our expectation for the continuation of the gifts that verified and validated the revelatory content of the apostles and the prophets with them, our expectation should be that those things also passed away at that time. Um, Just one more comment about apostleship real quickly. I think it's helpful to note that in church history, nobody claimed to be an apostle after the first century. The early church fathers did not claim to be apostles. No one in church history claimed to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, like Peter and Paul. We don't have that really recurring until, honestly, the late 20th century with the modern charismatic movement, where you suddenly have the rebirth of apostleship, supposedly. Uh, Secondly, no one today meets the standards for biblical prophets. And that includes both Old Testament prophets and New Testament prophets. And I would argue strongly from the pages of the New Testament that New Testament prophets were held to the same standards as Old Testament prophets. In fact, on the day of Pentecost, when the apostle Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2 and says, this is what the prophet Joel said, and then he talks about prophecy, it implies that the prophecy that would characterize the beginning of the church age would be the same kind of prophecy that Joel talked about, which was Old Testament prophecy. Biblical prophets had to demonstrate moral integrity. They had to maintain doctrinal orthodoxy. And you say, well, people can meet those standards today. I agree. But thirdly, a prophet was held to a standard of perfect accuracy when he delivered divine revelation. Whenever a prophet said, this is what the Lord says, thus saith the Lord, whatever came out next had to be 100% accurate or otherwise that guy was not a true prophet. You say, well, where is that in scripture? The clearest passage on that is Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 20 to 22, where Moses, really the Lord speaking through Moses, says, the prophet who speaks a word presumptuously in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or which he speaks in the name of other gods, that prophet shall die. So God takes this really seriously. You may say in your heart, how will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? How do we know if this guy's a true prophet or not a true prophet? 
When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously, and you should not be afraid of him. So God's standard for his prophets is 100% accuracy. And I don't have time to go through quotes from modern charismatic prophets, but by their own admission, they often get their prophecies wrong. And that in and of itself is a disqualifying characteristic of biblical prophets. So there are no apostles today. There are no prophets today. Uh, What about the gift of tongues? Well, the gift of tongues, rightly understood, as we've already mentioned, is the gift of foreign languages. And the gift of foreign languages is not operating today. Unfortunately, especially for those who come to the Master Seminary and have to spend years learning Greek and Hebrew, the gift of tongues is no longer in operation. I mean, wouldn't it be wonderful if through the power of the Holy Spirit, you were suddenly given the ability to speak in a foreign language fluently without having to go through the hard work of learning that foreign language. That would be amazing. Well, it was amazing. That's why the gift of tongues was miraculous. In Acts chapter 2, it's extremely clear in Luke's description of what happened on the day of Pentecost that those gathered in the upper room, which included the apostles, the 11, and another roughly 109 people. There were about 120 folks gathered in the upper room. They went throughout Jerusalem and they began preaching. Even though they were Galileans, they were preaching fluently. Luke mentions 16 different regions from the Roman Empire where they were speaking fluently in the languages and dialects of those regions. That's amazing. And that caused the people who were visiting Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost to go, wow, I'm hearing my own mother tongue spoken by people who I know are Galileans. They gather, Peter then is able to preach the gospel, and 3,000 are saved. That's the real gift of tongues. The just saying sort of incoherent syllables in a repetitive fashion that creates nonsensical sequences, uh, that is not the real gift of tongues. Okay. I I don't need to illustrate that anymore. Um, I do think it's important. I realize church history is not authoritative. Only scripture is authoritative. But in church history, it was always understood that the real gift of tongues was the ability to speak foreign languages. And this is interesting. If you study the history of Pentecostalism, you find that the original Pentecostals under Charles Parham and the Apostolic Faith Movement in the early 1900s, they also believed that the gift of tongues was real foreign languages. In fact, they thought that when they were saying all these ecstatic expressions, they thought that they were actually speaking in real foreign languages. And they sent missionaries around the world thinking, this is great. We don't have to do the hard work of language school anymore. We can send people out, and when they arrive, they'll just be able to start preaching the gospel. And to their great disappointment, those missionaries came back saying, we got there, we started speaking in tongues, no one could understand us. Um, It's because they weren't actually practicing the real gift of tongues. 
They weren't speaking authentic foreign languages. So when you understand what the gift of tongues really was, it quickly becomes clear that what's happening in modern charismatic circles is not what was happening in the New Testament. What about miracles and healings? No one today can perform miraculous healings as described in the New Testament, right? So New Testament healings did not depend on the faith of the recipient. Secondly, New Testament healings were complete, permanent, and 100% effective. Third, New Testament healings were undeniable and cured real diseases and disabilities. Fourth, New Testament healings were immediate. It didn't take weeks or months for a person to be healed. And finally, New Testament heals, healings were not prearranged. And when Jesus and the, you know, the description, the only descriptions we have of New Testament healings are found in the Gospels through Christ and in the book of Acts through the apostles. When you see Jesus and the apostles perform a miracle of healing, it's something that is absolutely undeniable and amazing. It's astounding. And if those things were actually happening today, medical science would be turned on its head. Um, unfortunately, today, many in the charismatic movement have gone one of two directions. They've either gone the faith healing route, where they claim to do these kinds of healings, but when they fail, they blame it on the lack of faith of the recipient. Like, you would have been healed, but you just don't have enough faith. It's not my fault. Or they redefine healing as answers to prayer. In kind of a James 5 sense, you pray for a person that's sick, and you trust the Lord over time to see if the Lord answers that prayer. Well, we believe in answers to prayer, and we believe that God can heal. He can heal in ways that seem extraordinary in answer to prayer. It's just that that's not the gift of healing that's described in the New Testament. So when you actually look at the New Testament and define these gifts biblically, apostleship has to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. Uh, prophecy has to have perfect 100% accuracy in the delivery of revelatory content. Tongues, the ability to speak a language you never went to school to learn, and Healing, instantaneous, undeniable, real diseases like blind people who can see and crippled people who can walk, uh, that's, that's amazing. That's what the New Testament describes these gifts as. When you compare that to what's happening in modern charismatic circles, even though they use the same terminology, they've had to redefine all of these to make them something else. So they redefine apostleship as church planting. They redefine prophecy as like spirit-led advice, and sometimes it's right and sometimes it's wrong. And tongues is a spiritual prayer speech that no one else understands because it's not a real language. And uh, healing is, is answers to prayer. Um, so really, although they're using the same terminology, most charismatics even would acknowledge, yeah, the, the quality of these things that we see in the New Testament, that's not happening today. Uh, and then that other bullet point there, a preoccupation with signs and ecstatic phenomenon is spiritually dangerous. Matthew 6, 7 is where Jesus warns against vain repetitions in prayer. 
And Matthew 16, verse 4 is where he says that it's a wicked generation that seeks for a sign. Okay, that's what I wanted to say about the extraordinary gifts. Let's shift gears and talk about the edifying gifts. What are the edifying gifts? So up to this point, I've talked about things that I've argued are no longer in operation. So now let's get to things that I would argue are still very much for the ongoing function of the church. I'm going to borrow the two categories from 1 Peter chapter 4, speaking gifts and serving gifts. And the speaking gifts would include gifts like pastoring, teaching, exhortation, and evangelism. Serving gifts would include gifts like serving, giving, leading, discernment or distinguishing of spirits, faith, showing mercy, helps, and administration. Now, in the passages that we've already read, and we'll look back briefly at some of these, Paul, or in the case of 1 Peter, Peter, doesn't go into a lot of depth detailing these specific gifts. So we're left looking at other places in the New Testament where these kinds of activities are described, even if they're not described specifically in the context of giftedness. Or we're left looking at the word itself and trying to do our best to extrapolate what would this have looked like in the function of the early church. But in some ways, I think the lack of, or the limited, maybe a better way to say it, the limited descriptions that we have really underscore the point that it's not so much about defining a specific gift as it is about using the way you've been gifted to serve other people and letting the Lord flesh that out in the context of real life and real church ministry. So let me give you just some examples. Uh, Ephesians 4.11 is where we see these speaking gifts listed in the form of offices or people. We've already looked at this passage, apostles, prophets. Now, Paul had already noted in Ephesians 2.20 earlier in the same letter that those were for the foundation of the church. And then we see evangelists, pastors, and teachers as those who are for the ongoing building up of the body of Christ. So where would we go to see some of these things illustrated? Well, pastoring. Uh, the passage that came immediately to my mind was 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, where Peter, as an apostle but also as an elder in a church, is writing to fellow elders And he's telling them to shepherd the flock in a way that is gracious and that shows the love of Christ. And in fact, the word pastor really is the word shepherd. We get our word pastoral. When you talk about pastoral, you can be referring to ministry. You can also be referring to fields where sheep graze, right? Pastures. Because it all comes from the same root. It means to shepherd. And there just are people who have the gift of shepherding others. That's the gift of pastoring. Teaching. Well, we see the gift of teaching in leadership context. That's where 2 Timothy chapter 2 comes in. And the gift of teaching would include both the ability to communicate clearly and also the ability to communicate accurately. So it's not just about clarity, it's also about correctness. 
And I think we see that in 2 Timothy 2, 2, the things you've heard from me, entrust these to faithful men who can teach others also. There's that generational concept of one generation teaches the next. And then later in that passage, be diligent as an approved workman to rightly divide the word of truth. Teaching involves correct interpretation and then the impartation of that knowledge to others. But we also see teaching in contexts that are not just leadership contexts. Here's Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom. And here it is, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So here we have a corporate call to teach one another. And certainly there are those who are gifted in the area of making truth clear, having interpreted it correctly. Exhortation. Here, 2 Timothy 4, again, in the context of pastoral ministry, Paul exhorts Timothy to preach the word, verse 2. And then he says, Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. But again, we see exhortation also in the context of a congregational, really a one another command, where here the NAS uses the word encourage, but it's that same idea, Hebrews 3.13, but exhort one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And exhortation is the idea of being an encourager. It's the idea of coming alongside and urging someone as together, iron sharpening iron, you are running the race of faith with endurance. And then evangelism. Here again, in the context of spiritual leadership, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 to 5, you have really a continuation of the idea of teaching, sound doctrine, all of these things. And then in verse 5, Paul ends by saying, But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, and do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. So we see within the context of spiritual leadership that being an effective witness, one who is, 1 Peter 3.15, always ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and reverence, a winsome witness for the gospel of Jesus Christ is uh, something that all believers are called to do, but some are specially equipped by God to do that. And we see that not just in the context of spiritual leadership, but for all believers. And I included the Great Commission here because I want to underscore the fact that we are all called to be Great Commission Christians, to go, really that's a participle, having gone to make disciples and to teach them all that Christ has commanded us. So I wanted to show both a passage about church leadership and also a passage that relates to the entire congregation because I didn't want it to seem as if teaching and exhortation and evangelism are only limited to those who are in positions of or offices of spiritual leadership. These are things that the New Testament calls all believers to engage in, but some, given our list of spiritual gifts, are specially gifted by the Spirit to accomplish those things. 
In addition to the speaking gifts, we have the serving gifts. This, again, serving, giving, leading, discernment, faith, showing mercy, helps, administration. Do we see these things illustrated throughout the New Testament? We do. Uh, Romans chapter 12, we've already read these verses, so I don't need to read them again, but it's really in Romans 12, 3 through 8, that we see these serving gifts highlighted. Now, Paul does start his list here with prophecy, which we've already identified as one of the extraordinary gifts, but you'll notice the others, faith, serving, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, showing mercy. So these are examples of some speaking gifts, but many serving gifts. And 1 Peter 4, another passage we've already looked at, those who speak, speak as if you're speaking for God. Those who serve, serve through the power that God supplies. So where do we see illustrations of these? Well, when it comes to service, that word is the same word from which we get the English word deacon. It literally means ministry. It's just a general word for getting involved in serving. And it's hard to think of a better passage than John 13, which is the place in Scripture where we find Jesus washing the feet of his disciples and Jesus then commanding believers in the same way that I've served you and shown you love through this sacrificial act, you are to go and serve others in a sacrificial way. And there would be many passages that we could add to that that show the attitude of service that ought to accompany all of us. But there are some who are specially gifted when it comes to serving. Giving. Paul in 2 Corinthians 9 famously says that God loves a cheerful giver. And you see that there in verses 6 and 7 of 2 Corinthians 9. All believers are commanded to give out of the abundance of their heart. But there are certain individuals who are specially gifted in this area. And one of the things that I think is so cool about spiritual gifts is it's not just that God gives you an ability, it's that God gives you a desire. And so it's not just that people who have the gift of generosity perhaps have the funds (laughs) to be generous, it's that they have the desire to be generous. And the reality is you don't need the funds, you need the desire. And when God gives people almost a double dose of that kind of desire, it's just an amazing thing. And you see that lived out in the lives of the church. And the body, of course, is benefited by that. Gifts of leadership. Uh, Here I found 1 Timothy 5.17 because the idea of leading really is the idea of ruling. So this would perhaps relate more to elders. So 1 Timothy 5.17, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. But certainly there would be an application to those who are not in an office of official leadership. There is the idea of being a leader, and God gifts certain people with the gift of leadership. I know people that I work with where I'm like, man, the Lord has just given them a special endowment of leadership where people just want to follow them. And you probably know people like that too. Administration. This is similar to leadership. It's the idea of coordinating, organizing, and 
leading, to be redundant, group efforts at accomplishing specific tasks and meeting specific needs. And I think we see this illustrated in Acts 6. You'll remember there was a group of widows in the early church who had needs, and the apostles said, you know, really it's not best for us to focus on that. We're supposed to be focusing on preaching the word in prayer. And so they identified seven men who then took care of this task. And those men were gifted, and they were gifted at coordinating and executing a specific task for the benefit of the body of Christ. Uh, then we have discernment. This is talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 7 to 11, right there in that section. Paul calls it the distinguishing between spirits. It's a Greek word, uh, diacrino is the Greek word. It's used again in 1 Corinthians 14 and in other places in the New Testament. It always refers to the ability to distinguish between people, whether or not a person is true or a person is false. Right? In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus warned about false prophets, and he said, you will know them by their fruit. And a person with the gift of discernment is able to identify that which is true, spoken by a true spokesman of God, as opposed to that which is false, spoken by a false teacher or somebody who is seeking to confuse the congregation. And there's an application of it in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. I put 1 Thessalonians 5 because here Paul says, do not despise prophetic utterances. Of course, he wrote that at a time when prophetic utterances were uh, happening often. We might say it this way, hey, don't, don't despise someone who says, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm ministering for the Lord. I have a ministry for God. But instead, examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good and abstain from that which is evil. And really, again, I think the application of the gift of discernment is primarily towards people and then secondarily towards the doctrine that those people hold. And you probably know people like that. I know people like that, where you're like, man, that person just has the ability. It almost seems uncanny. They have the ability to go, you know, something's off about this other person, uh, either because of their ministry or because of something. And I think that fits in the category of the gift of discernment. The gift of faith. Uh, here I put Jesus' words in Matthew 17, where he says, if you have even the smallest amount of faith, the faith of a mustard seed, you would be able to do amazing things. Not because you can do anything, but because you're believing and entrusting yourself to the, to the God of the universe who can do all things. And all of us as Christians are called to be discerning. All of us as Christians are called to exhibit faith. But there are people who in moments of trial and crisis, you just go, wow, they have faith that is supernatural. And I think that's an expression of the gift of faith. And they become encouragements to the rest of the body of Christ. Helps and mercy are really the same thing. Um, Galatians 6 talks about, let us not lose heart in doing good for in due time, we will reap if we do not grow weary, so then 
While we have opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. I'm not sure why my PowerPoint cut off the end of the verse, but um, Paul's point is we should all seek to help others, to be merciful to others. But there are some people in the body of Christ who just have a stronger desire to do that, and they've been equipped by God to accomplish those things. So, I've said it already throughout, but it should be noted that many of these things are commands for all believers, even if not everyone especially gifted in the same way. So just because I may not have the gift of mercy doesn't give me an excuse to not be merciful. Just because I may not have the gift of giving doesn't give me an excuse not to give. We're all called to do many of these things. But God, in his great wisdom, has specially endowed certain members of the body of Christ to have a particularly strong interest and an elevated ability to do these things. And when they do that, the entire body corporate is strengthened and edified. And Paul used the analogy of the physical human body in 1 Corinthians 12. I think that's an incredible analogy because you think about, again, all of the different ways in which our body has been designed by God. And there's a sense in which every part of the body does certain things, um, but there are special functions and tasks that particular parts of the body are designed by God to do. And when they function properly, the entire body benefits. Second bullet point there, other gifts like hospitality, which is mentioned in 1 Peter 4.9, and singleness in 1 Corinthians 7.7, 7, are sometimes included in the list of spiritual gifts. Um, I think we would also recognize that marriage is a gift from the Lord. So just adding that in there. Okay. Number seven. It is, 1 Peter 3, 7. It's a gift from the Lord. It's a, it's a grace of life. Why, number seven, does the Holy Spirit give us spiritual gifts? Well, we've been talking about this all morning, but he gives us spiritual gifts not so that we hoard them for ourselves, not so that we can edify ourselves, not so that we can be puffed up in pride and be like, hey, I've got the gift of administration. Pretty cool. Uh, No, that's not why he gives us these gifts. He gives us these gifts so that we can employ them in either evangelism when we are ministering to an unbeliever or edification when we are ministering to fellow Christians. But it is always others-oriented. And you see that in our four main texts, 1 Corinthians 12. There are a variety of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit, and here it is, for the common good. Romans chapter 12, For just as we have many members in one body, and all members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. It's that body metaphor. We see it in Ephesians 4. He gave all of these gifted people to the church, verse 12, 
for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And again, in 1 Peter chapter 4, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. So why does God give gifts to the church, to people in the church? It's so that they can serve one another. And if you are not employing your giftedness to serve other people, then you're missing out on the opportunity that God has given you. More than that, you are not being a good steward, as Peter says here, of the grace of God in your life. Question number eight. Does everyone receive the same spiritual gifting? Does everyone receive the same spiritual gift? Well, the answer to that we've already talked about. The answer is no. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14, For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jew or Gentile, whether slave or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit, for the body is not one member, but many. So you have there an expression of the fact that we are all given distinct gifting by God in order that we might build up the body of Christ. Uh, I will just make one comment about that. I think sometimes it's tempting to think, well, there's a list. Uh, We've had a list of close to 20 spiritual gifts that we've talked about this morning. It's tempting to think, well, that must mean that there's only 20 variations, right? I have one gift from God, that's it. And there's, well, if we take out the extraordinary gifts, there's maybe a dozen other kinds. And it's like, well, I have helps. Uh, You have administration, you have giving, you have leading, uh, and then that's it. I think a more accurate way to view it is that God takes from this, and, and Pastor John has used this analogy before, he takes really from a palette of all of these different gifts in that are available to us in Christ through the Holy Spirit, and he uniquely creates a portrait that's perfectly crafted for where he's placed you in ministry so that it's not just, oh, I have the gift of helps or, oh, I have the gift of giving. It's that God has given and gifted you with a variety of these things in a specially crafted, Holy Spirit-empowered package that is you. Now, I was talking with a friend uh, the other day about this presentation, and I just made the comment that I hate snowflake analogies. And I, I really don't like snowflake analogies because snowflakes get used in our culture to refer to all sorts of different things. But there is some truth to the fact that every believer is uniquely designed by God so that you're not quite like anyone else, hence the snowflake, (laughs) but you have been put in a place where when you employ your gifting for the glory of Christ, you are the perfect fit for where he's put you. And I think that's so encouraging. And again, it goes back to that 
fundamental question. It's not, what is my gift? You don't need to take a test. In fact, I would encourage you not to. Those things are not very helpful. And honestly, when I take you know, personality tests and that kind of stuff, I tend to answer the way I want to answer rather than what's actually true. So those, those things are not always very helpful. Instead, the question is, how can you be a gift to the church? Jump in, seek to serve, and then see what doors and opportunities God gives you as the desires that he's created in you, he gives you the ability to fulfill. All right, number nine, what if people use their gifting for selfish ends? And I I think that's a pertinent question. It's a pertinent question not only because in the New Testament we have an example in the Corinthian congregation of an entire church that was using spiritual gifts for their own self-promotion. They really, really wanted the gift of tongues. Why? Because that was the gift that was so visibly demonstrated on the day the church was born by the apostles on the day of Pentecost. I mean, if the apostles are doing this amazing miracle speaking in foreign languages, who doesn't want that gift? It's like, awesome. Well, Paul's like, yeah, but those of you who have been given the gift of tongues, you're using that to like show off and brag and be puffed up. (laughs) I have the gift of tongues. Listen to me talking Chinese. Um, And Paul's like, that's not why these gifts were given. These gifts were given so that you can employ them for either evangelism or edification. And so the the New Testament condemns a selfish use of the gifts. We see that in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul uses some hypothetical examples and essentially says, look, if I have tongues, even an amazing version of tongues, the tongues of angels, or if I have prophecy and I, I can tell the future, or I have so much faith that I can move mountains. But if I don't have love, I've missed the entire point. And what is love? Love is that others-focused, service-oriented employment of what God's given me for the benefit of other people. And of course, Paul goes on in that passage to give us verses about what love is. This tends to get taken out of context and embroidered for weddings and things. It's a beautiful section of Scripture, But when Paul wrote these words that love is patient and kind and does not seek its own and so on and so forth, when Paul wrote those words, he was writing it in the context of warning Christians not to use their spiritual gifts selfishly, but instead to be others-oriented and to employ them in a way that shows love for others and love for Christ. All right, that brings us finally to question number 10, How do I discover my spiritual giftedness? And we've already hinted at the answer to this, but I think it's helpful to just ask the question straight out. How do I discover my spiritual giftedness? Well, first, invest yourself in the life of the church. Seek to serve and seek, if God's gifted you in this way, to speak. But whether it's a speaking gift or a serving gift, jump in and get involved. Again, spiritual gifting is not so much about identifying some category. It's not like you take a test and then they're like, 
this is what you are, and then you're like, okay, that's not what I wanted, but great, I'll go for it. It's that you have been given desires and opportunities by the Holy Spirit. So follow your desires to serve him. Use those opportunities. And as you do that, he's going to give you the ability to accomplish what he's called you to do. And people around you are going to be like, hey, you know what? You are really good at administrating that. And you're like, really? And they're like, yeah. And you're like, huh. I think maybe that's my spiritual gift. But it's one of those things where you discover your gift by using your gift. You don't discover your gift because you put some information into an algorithm and it spits out a category. So invest yourself in the life of the church, and as you serve, the Spirit will give you interests and abilities that correspond with what He's called you to do, and this gifting will be confirmed and affirmed by others as they see you serve. A couple other points here. Recognize that God gifts everyone differently. So this is not like, oh man, I wish I had his gift, but I don't. That's entirely missing the point. When you feel envy rising in your heart, that's evidence that you are thinking about gifting in a selfish and self-promoting way rather than a service and others-oriented way. Secondly, for us, oh, excuse me, Focus. Let's see if I can actually focus. Focus less on identifying your set of gifts and focus more on being a gift to the rest of the body of Christ. And we've um, emphasized that throughout. And then as you serve others and build up your fellow believers in the body, you will bring glory to the head of the church, the head of the body, the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I hope that a discussion like this is something that frees you up. Rather than constraining you to only these categories or constraining you to, I have to know what my gift is before I can use it, the goal of a conversation like this is to say, no, no, if you are in the body of Christ, you have been given by the Spirit as a gift to the church. So how can you be a gift to the people that God has placed in your life. And as you answer that question and live out the answer to that question, it's going to become obvious to you and to others the way in which he's uniquely gifted you so that you can edify your fellow brothers and sisters and bring glory to our King. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are, again, so grateful for the way in which your word equips us, the way in which your spirit enables us to speak things that are true and to serve others in a way that builds them up in the body of Christ. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to present this information today. And Lord, I ask that you would enable all of us, motivate all of us, to jump in and to serve. And when we do that, Lord, we do it for your glory, your honor, not as man-pleasers, but as those who are looking forward to one day seeing you face to face. Our reward is with you, and yet you reward us so much through the joy of giving us this opportunity, knowing that when we are faithful in this, the body of Christ is built up, 
The gospel is gloriously put on display and your name is exalted. And we pray these things in that name today. Amen.